Video recordings of this podcast can be found on RaisingEquity.org and Raising Equity on YouTube. Hey folks, welcome to Raising Equity. I'm Dr. Kira Banks. And today I want to do a short snippet on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And the question I get in uh, the number of trainings, did King want us to be colorblind? The answer is no. No, he didn't. He absolutely saw race. He saw racism. He saw the impact of racism and classism and all sorts of inequities in our society. What he said is that he didn't want people to be judged by the color of their skin. He wanted people to be judged by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. He had the dream for his four little girls, right? If you remember in his speech, he never said, let's not see it. And I want to be really clear because I hear people invoke Dr. King in saying, well, we shouldn't, we shouldn't talk about race. We shouldn't see race. We should just treat each other as individuals as King wanted. He said he wanted people to be treated fairly. He didn't say we should ignore their skin color and their race. And we have a large body of research that also says being colorblind is not the approach to take. And and also let me pause here, is many people have shifted from using the language of colorblind to color evasive because the even the term colorblind sounds could come off as ableist. Like there's nothing wrong with being colorblind. That is actually a disability that some people have. And so to frame it as a bad thing, um, folks have shifted and, and used the term color evasive or minimizing, uh, but it's often widely understood, the term colorblind. And so I think we're at this point where we're, we're wanting to name and acknowledge how the term can be problematic. And then also it's a shorthand for people basically minimizing race and saying we should just see people as people. We should just see people as individuals. All that to say, we have a large body of research that suggests that is not the approach, that taking that approach, being color evasive, doesn't minimize the impact of racism. So people say, oh, well, if we just, you know, take the names off race, uh, off of resumes, then we won't see the race. And so then we're, we're, you know, doing kind of a, we're doing a, a review of the resumes where we can't see their names and right, all of this, that that takes it out of the equation. But in actuality, you saw this in orchestras where they did blind auditions where they did not see the person, they just heard them play. And orchestras found a huge increase in women being admitted, invited to be part of orchestras when they did this type of audition. It's not as simple when it comes to other sorts of resumes or jobs, right? Because there can be other markers, not just a name, but where someone went to school or what organizations or fraternities or uh, volunteer organizations they're a part of or connected to. And then here's the issue. Even if someone can scrub, scrub their race and their racial identity and their affiliations from their resume and make it through Have you created an environment where they'll be respected, where they're able to thrive, where they can bring their full selves, right? So that does not solve the problem of racial bias in hiring. Um, I've also heard people say, well, that's just, you know, I just want to see people as individuals and I don't want, I, I don't want to see them as a racial group. Like people will say, oh, Kira, I don't think of you as black. I just think of you as Kira. Well, you know, in a way that could be seen as offensive because being black is a part of who I am. That's a part of my identity. It's something I value. And so I would invite you to think about, is there a part of your identity that's really important to you? Maybe it's your religion. Maybe it's being a caregiver. Maybe it's being a veteran. Some aspect of your social identity that matters to you. If I were to say, oh, 
I don't even see that. That doesn't, that doesn't matter to me. We shouldn't even talk about it. Let's minimize the importance of that because I don't want to see it. That might not land well with you. And so that's what happens when we minimize race and we say we don't want to talk about it because it is a part of people's experience. It's a part of people's identity. It's a part of the reality of how we shape society. And so we don't really get to say we don't, we don't want to talk about it, right? I just see you as an individual. And then the last piece I'll say is research consistently shows that young people, as young as four to six months, notice race. They notice skin tone differences that babies will attend to and look at uh, people who have a different skin tone than the folks who are in their home. And so uh, this research is mostly done with with babies, you know, who have uh, parents who are of one racial or ethnic background. And so that shows that they're noticing race. Now, that doesn't mean that they are noticing and have all the baggage that we have about race in terms of ideas and about who people are and who's good or who's bad. That means they're noticing skin tone. They're noticing the level of melanin that someone has in their skin. So they see race. And that's okay. They're learning how to be in this world. They're making sense of what's happening around them. And so it would make sense that they'd see it. So if babies see it, and then we have research of as young as preschool, kids start to pick up the baggage that we have about race and start to understand the stories and the narratives of who's trustworthy, who's pretty, who's good, who's smart, right? As young as preschool, three to five. So if babies see it and the three to five-year-olds are starting to pick up the narratives and stories that we tell, how are we going to claim as adults that we don't see race? We see it. It's a matter of acknowledging and naming the ways in which we've been told stories, the ways in which it shaped our ideas about ourselves, our others, and, and others, and then managing that. So to claim that you don't see it does not absolve you of the fact that you have been socialized to see the world in a racialized way. Beverly Daniel Tatum, author of Why Are the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria, talks about it being like smog in the air. Like if these messages and narratives are like smog in the air, how are you going to say you don't breathe that in, right? That's when people say, oh, I don't have a prejudiced bone in my body. We all do. And it's a matter of acknowledging that and then managing it because we can't work against it if we don't acknowledge it or name it. So I wanted to share this just because... I, I, like I said, I get this question a lot and I want you to be able to join me in the chorus of no's that King did not say we should be colorblind. He did not say that. And, and if we really dig deeper, it's not the approach to take. It doesn't solve for racism. He saw classism, imperialism. He saw all sorts of isms and oppression in society. He wanted us to see it, to name it, to work and be in coalition to dismantle it. That's what he wanted. And I, I wonder, I feel like this question came up a lot in the past and then it, it, it was less common for a while and I, you know, it could be for a whole host of reasons, but I actually think that some of the, the mainstream ways in which politically um, opponents to CRT and, and talking about like racism openly and as a systemic and structural issue, uh, I think that that more mainstream conversation and, and dialogue and in many ways debate has brought this question up. But then I also think that it's, March of 2020, if you would ask me if virtual DEI training sessions would work, I would be skeptical. I would have been willing to try because, hey, what are we going to do? But I wasn't a proponent. 
after doing it for almost two years, I actually think that there's something we gain from that format in that people are willing to private message me questions that I don't think they'd be willing to raise their hand in a room of 20, 30, 50, 100 of their of their colleagues to ask. And so I actually think that this question is one that has been has been on people's minds but they were less willing to ask and now we're in a place politically and then also with with technology where they can ask me this question and they 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 feel like they're, you know, challenging me. Well, didn't King say we should be colorblind? And I'm very comfortable saying no, that's not actually what he said and that's a misquote and having the conversation and so given that here we are at his at his day, I felt like it was worth sharing with you all so that you can be armed with the information, with the knowledge, so you can also answer that question should it come to you. I hope that this helped you understand where some of the the assumptions around like King's quote being used as a as a proponent of of people not seeing race or and minimizing the conversation of racism, uh, I think for some folks they're like, well, wait, how are you going to use King to to say we shouldn't talk about racism? Isn't the core of what he does to to talk about racism? Uh, so it's this really interesting kind of paradoxical manipulation of his of his message that I think is happening here. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it. That's all I got for you today. I want you to think about it, be reflective as you are honoring his memory. And one of the things I want you to remember is he was not so popular in his day, right? He was a disturber. He he wanted us as as much as the narrative of him as a peaceful, peaceful protester and, and peaceful agitator is is put forward. We also have to remember that that he was about coalition building, he was about disturbing, and people said he was pushing too much, too far, too fast. And so what are you seeing that's happening right now in our moment, our, in our movement time that you feel like, oh, this makes me uncomfortable. Is this too fast, too far? Is this too much, right? I want you to push yourself and and really dig in and understand where they're coming from, whether it's whether it's a, a narrative about defunding police and you have a quick reaction, like, what does that really mean? Oh, it actually, oh, it means we want to make sure that we have social workers and other other social service workers that can serve people, that we don't need police to do all the things that we that we're asking them to do in society. Oh, maybe I maybe I can understand that. Maybe I don't like that slogan, but I can understand where they're coming from. Like how do you slow down to understand what movement spaces are asking for in this moment? Um, all right. You can find me on the socials. I'm Kira Banks on Twitter, Dr. Kira Banks on Instagram and Facebook. Thanks for joining me on Raising Equity. <laughs>